Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Tom Perez, the next uh, DNC chair. Uh, too bad it's not Keith Ellison, but... Um, I would uh, join uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and others uh, issuing a unity call behind uh, Tom Perez, a man who was very much a part of uh, a great campaign on uh, Keith on, by Keith Ellison, uh, is here with us in studio, Larry Cohen, uh, who's also chair of the board of uh, Bernie's uh, new group, uh, Our Revolution. Larry, good to see you. Yeah, great to be here. So, um, you know, Keith was taking on the Democratic establishment, and the establishment, once again... Uh, failed to, I don't know, what, see the writing on the wall or reflect what where the American people really are? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I, I would say the good news would be that um, by acclamation, Keith was elected deputy chair. Now yeah, it's a question, right. what does that mean? And, uh, you know, I would say if Tom was here, hey, Tom, uh, good campaign. Look forward to working with you again. But, um, you know, this needs to be a real partnership. That's what those results show. And... Um, what what is it about the? Um, uh, I mean, first of all, this, the DNC. In a sense, I was not surprised. I mean, t- t- strongly supporting Keith. I think Keith would have been the guy. He's the grassroots guy. He's yeah. the progressive. He's the guy we need. He's got the energy. Um, the Democratic Party the establishment just doesn't seem to want to let go. Right? Is that what it is? Or yeah. I mean, I think most. Uh, that's true in many organizations. To be fair. Yeah. True. Right. And. Uh, uh, definitely true here. Uh, it was amazing. It was almost, you know, a virtual tie on the first ballot. Yeah. Uh, again, we don't know exactly who voted which ways, <laughs> right. despite the rules. Um, and then uh, the second ballot, a bunch of people voted somehow who didn't vote on the first ballot. Um, so it wasn't as close, but um, still is, close. Yeah. Is Tom, uh, he, Tom's a good guy. Yeah. You, you and I both agree with that. And he was probably the best labor secretary we ever had. Uh, does he have enough... Um, freedom, if you will, from the or distance from the establishment, you know, with the support. That's the real question. It, it, to, to really shake up the party as it needs, top to bottom, as Bernie says. Well, so first, I think it's a question of Keith, and I did talk to him briefly afterwards, uh, but not at length. You know, what does he do with this role of, as deputy chair? Is it symbolic or is it real? Does he stay in the Congress? He stays in the Congress. Okay. Yeah, and that's great. And so he's co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, major role. Um, I was a little nervous about him giving up the seat personally, but he made a decision to do that. That was an issue early on, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even though the last two chairs weren't full time, uh, weren't paid at all. Yeah. Uh, but so he, he will still be in Congress and yep. he'll have this role as deputy chair. And there's never well, I won't say never because uh, there, there have been cases where I remember where Don Fowler and Chris Dodd co-chaired sort of the, the, the committee. So. But I do we know what the role of deputy chair? No, is? nothing. It was done by acclamation in thirty seconds. 
And uh, again, the, the DNC has lots of strengths. It's been under attack. I've been a member of it for 12 years. But, um, you know, on the other hand, uh, change is needed. I think people recognize it. And uh, we need to plow ahead with real change there. Tom Perez afterwards said, according to a couple of reports, he wants to make Keith Ellison the face of the Democratic Party, um, which I, I'm not sure how that's going to work or what that's going to look like if he if he was running for DNC chair and he wants to make somebody else the face of the Democratic Party. How's that going to look, do you think? I think that's great if he said that um, because, you know, Hopefully the face and the head are connected, <laughs> and that means uh, they're going to really work together, and I'm certainly committed to doing that. Uh, and again, I have another role there, uh, vice chair of the Unity Reform Commission, so I'll be working with Tom in that way. All right, and these are the big changes that I want to get to with you, uh, yeah. what we can expect uh, in terms of some of the issues, superdelegates, closed primaries, caucuses, right. and all that kind of stuff, which uh, you've got the challenge to decide. Um, so you're still a member of the DNC? Yeah. A voting member. Yeah, unless Tom right. throws me off. Okay. Right now I'm on there. All right. <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you think that should has to happen to the Democratic Party in terms of membership, in terms of focus, in terms of the DNC itself? Uh, uh, quick story. When, the last time I was at the DNC, I, I mentioned this on the other on the actual on interview I did with the Young Turks from the White House the other day, is that when I went out to Minneapolis last July to see all the Democratic candidates, um, in uh, in 2015, actually, with Bernie and Hillary and Lincoln Chafee and Jim Webb, everybody was Martin O'Malley, and I sat with the California delegation because I used to be a member of the DNC when I was state chair in California. That was 20 years ago, and everybody on that committee were the same damned 20 pe- <laughs> people who had been there 20 years before. That's stunning, right? So I mean, I think the D- DNC itself needs a real house cleaning, a real shakeup. You know, maybe term limits, you know, some new blood. Yeah, term limits might be a good idea, even if that turned me off. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, sorry, I don't, I don't mind that. No, I don't mind that at all. So, um, what has to happen to the party to really reinvigorate it, do you think? So, the key is every county, 3,143 counties, you know, there needs to be structure, there needs to be involvement. It's there on paper. There are precinct chairs, there are county chairs. But, uh, the real reality of the DNC is it's been run by the White House for the last eight years. Obama for America, which became Organizing for America, uh, was there at the same time. Uh, it, it was doing, uh, it was hollowed out. I don't blame the staff at all, the DNC, lots of good mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. there. Um, so it has to be from the bottom up, and many states are going through that. So ironically- You're talking about, uh, this is interesting to me. So this is not a 50-state strategy. This is a 3,400 county strategy. Yeah, 3,143. I have memorized that number. I know no one else has. 3,143. All right. 30,000 municipalities, if we want to go even deeper. Um, So, yeah. I mean, if we don't do that, uh, you know, if you looked at a map, for example, of the 2008 election, Trump won 2,600 of those counties. Wow. Jesus. Whoa. And yeah. if you go state by state, it's even more shocking. Like Iowa, I think he won 94 out of 99, 99. counties. Yeah. It's like that all over. So the, so it's got to go county by county by county by county. Yeah. Right? So the, where is the— And it has that structure. It's just that it's not been used and it's emptied out. Right. So that's got to be the focus, you believe. Yeah, yeah, bottom up, get more people involved. Many states have done that. So it was interesting when, the, uh, when Donna Brazil, who was the interim chair— 
asked how many delegates here are new, I would say 100 out of the probably 350 in the room, because a lot of them were proxy votes. Uh, it's another issue, but um, stood up. And so, you know, it definitely changes in the wind. That's good. Including your state, California, they're reorganizing in the next few weeks. Uh, we've been pretty involved in that as our revolution. Yeah. Well, that, that, There's no, 1,100 that, delegates, 600 of them are new. Wow. To the state convention. To the state convention. Yeah. yeah. One of the things we're doing is getting people involved at the county level uh, uh, to build that kind of structure and get young and new people involved. And that's happening and in California. And is that one area where you think Keith Ellison will be able to... Uh, yeah. I mean, again, if the face is connected to the head and the body, we're in good shape because the, together... Uh, we represent real change. It's not like Tom Perez is the old guard. He was never involved at all. It's just right. another whole yeah. issue in the campaign. You know, you hit on a couple of things. There's so much frustration, I think, from young people at how the primary played out with Bernie versus Hillary, right? I, I think frustration is the best way to put it. And that frustration sort of turned to anger after the general election and they saw what happened. And you have a lot of people who just have all this energy and they, they want to put it somewhere. They want to get out there, and they want to devote it to something. And I think that to get the right face and the right head together, yeah. right, that you could really, you could really make some moves. Here. Cristobal Alex here is in studio with us. Uh, Cristobal Alex, the president of the Latino Victory Fund. So, um. We want to look at the national level, but uh, and and Congress and the Senate and houses and governors. But we got a big victory over the weekend with Tom Perez, huh? We sure did. We couldn't yeah. be more proud. It's a it's a milestone for the Latino community, you know. And it's nearly two hundred year existence. We've never had Latino lead the party, and here we've got this incredible progressive champion who understands that we need to rebuild the party. And his very first act was to to bring in Keith Ellison as his deputy. It just sends. Uh, a beautiful signal, not just to the country, but especially to Donald Trump that, that we're going to be coming after him, but a huge win for, for all of us. Uh, how do you deal with the fact that, um, I mean, I saw a story on CBS the other night where Donald Trump had said, we've deported more people than had ever been deported before. And CBS actually showed that in the month of January, the number of people deported by Donald Trump, it was in the 400,000 or whatever, was actually less than were deported by President Obama during that same time. I'm, I'm, I'm a year earlier in the month of January. So, I mean, President Obama, also known, as you know, and right. as the deporter-in-chief. Are right. Trump's policies worse than Obama's? They are worse. Um, so remember, uh, we were pushing, and it had passed um, the Senate comprehensive immigration reform. It got killed in the House because Republicans didn't want to have immigration reform. The reason... They don't want immigration reform is the same reason why they pass these anti-voter laws. They don't want us to participate in our democracy. They don't want us to vote. They don't want us to count. And so they've blocked that bill. What happened instead were executive orders uh, by the president uh, that protected millions of immigrants, dreamers and their families, for instance. First thing Trump does, he comes in, he starts rolling back those executive orders, yeah. starts issuing these memoranda, uh, calling for mass deportations and really empowering ICE uh, um, to act as, you know, police and judge in rounding up our communities and breaking apart families. It's, it's shocking. Now, I'm not defending some of the president's uh, immigration policies. Obviously, a good friend of mine, Janet, referred to him as 
the porter in chief, and <laughs> that was uh, uh, it was an unfortunate time. And you know, I, I, this Donald Trump though is is much much worse. And there's a level of of racism I think that we're starting to see in the way some of these countries are being selected around the Muslim ban, among other things. And it's just a totally different approach. I, I think that we also sort of forgot that he's barely been president for a month, right? Like yeah. it was oh, yeah. a I mean it was a rocky month to be sure. But there were a lot of things that we were really fearful of, you know, either shutting out the press or rounding up immigrants and turning this into a real sort of police state in that sense. <clears throat> He's just getting started. Uh, yeah, there's no doubt. That we Donald, got a lot more. We got a lot more to go. When yeah. Donald Trump says he would like, you know, he talks about deporting everybody who is here illegally. He really means it. I mean, right. His, it seems like uh, he does. And that certainly was never Obama's goal. Right. No. But, and And here's the other thing. I mean. How is he going to do that? I mean, he, oh, he's yeah, talking yeah. about hundreds of thousands of of, of National Guard being yeah. called up. He's talking it, essentially what we're talking about is, is internment camps and a, a very dark time in our history. And it seems like it's it's coming back. And we've got to we've got to fight together uh, to stop this guy. And where he, he, the question of DACA? What do you think? I mean, he said in his news conference something. Like, this is a tough decision for me. This is tough. But I sort of had the feeling that. He's still going to try to reverse DACA. What it- I think what he's going to try to do, and we're already starting to see that, is that is a political pain point for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it seems like they'll try to do is um, not have the president take the action, but kind of move the deference to to the agencies, in particular Homeland Security and ICE, to to take that on, and what we're what we're what we will probably see, unfortunately, are uh, them beginning to go after um, DACA um, and DAPA recipients, including the person we talked about in Seattle. So mm-hmm. uh, it'll be kind of a Steve Bannon dream come true, where Oof. police uh, squads, you know, in helmets are going house to house looking for for our community. And there are millions of kids, right, un- under DACA or millions. young Americans. That's uh, right. Or- they're, well, Americans in every way, but a piece of paper, right? Who right. are valedictorians, who've been here forever, um, who who don't sometimes speak another language, have never been to a, a country of their parents' origin. Um, it's it's crazy. Is there any effort, organized effort, to try to? Uh, I was really struck last week by the um, a day without an immigrant, mm-hmm. uh, just to get the message out about how significant, what an important, incredible contribution to so many uh, parts of our, aspects of our economy, right? We depend on the immigrant community. It's so true. Restaurants, uh, you know, agriculture, you know, across the board. From the so, food that we eat yeah. to um, all of the incredible work that happens uh, to keep our economy going. Every, it's yeah. such an important part. And billions, billions and billions of dollars would be lost. Both CAP put out, a, Center of American Progress put out a report on the impact uh, of immigration and, and what some of these negative things that Trump is doing would have in our economy. Pew has come out with, with, with similar reporting of the billions of dollars that immigrants contribute. But it's also not just, um, you know, our folks that are that are working in the fields and feeding us and in our restaurants, but also think about the immigrants across the tech sector. You know, Elon Musk is, I yeah, think, has been yeah. referred to as an undocumented immigrant or others. I mean, immigration is just key to who we are as a country. You see the Statue of Liberty and what she says when you come into New York Harbor, I mean, this is a nation of immigrants. Now, our president doesn't like certain types of immigrants, apparently, those with darker skin. 
Um, but I think what we need to do, um, and this is, again, part of the major meeting that we're having tomorrow with leaders from across the country, is really be strategic about where we push and how hard we push and when we do that so that in the first 100 days, as we're seeing this madness, um, that we're able to make sure that we realize this is going to be a longer fight. We've got midterm elections coming. We've got some important elections this year. And we've got to elect progressive champions in places like sanctuary cities and others mm-hmm. where we can defend our people and have the fight in the cities and in the states where we have a good chance of success. What do you do with a uh, a Marco Rubio or a Ted Cruz or those few sort of outlier Republican uh, <laughs> Latinos? Well, uh, <laughs> they're, um, they're... I mean, all of us have... Dysfunctional families, right? I mean, well, yeah, we, have, we have people in our family that sometimes exactly. we never. So I, I guess it's that's, funny that you say that because I've I've always called Ted Cruz like our crazy uncle. We've all got one of those. Yeah, you, uh, you try to you know deal with them at Thanksgiving, <laughs> but uh, don't let them drink too much. <laughs> but what do we do with them? Otherwise, you just you love them, but you just wish you weren't there. Right? right or exactly. <laughs> you know when when Be- when Cruz came out, he turned his back on our community. Yeah, and, and Marco. Yeah. You know, uh, or as Trump would call him, little Marco, little Marco. has little Marco. Uh, you know has has done some things uh, that that have gone against what his community stands for, and hopefully now he'll he's in he's in the Senate, he's back. I hope he sees the light, and uh, we'll get our back this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know I'm sure that in terms of look, I'm a Democrat, I'm a yell dog Democrat. I want you all to be Democrats, but I'm sure in terms of as a political force. You have to have some outreach to members of the other party. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll tell you a story. So when we launched this organization before the 2014 midterms, we said explicitly it needed to be nonpartisan because our hope and dream was that both Republicans and Democrats would compete for our votes. That's how you build political power. Right, right. Now, of course... It didn't turn out that way. You've got the leader of the Republican Party who is, instead of competing for our votes, actively trying to suppress our vote and to break up our families. So the, so we had to make a decision come out of the election that said, right. okay, you know, that was a very ideal scenario. But what we need to do is move a lot of our operations into the political uh, sphere, including our super PAC. We're going to focus on this nonpartisan component. We've got to become unapologetically progressive and unapologetically Latino because in this environment, it doesn't work. Um, now, yeah. I do hold out hope and a dream that um, Republicans will come around and right. that uh, they'll, they'll, they'll appreciate us and, and come out for a vote. But right now, that's not the case. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Joining us in studio for this next uh, half hour, uh, covering um, the White House, the Congress, all everything going on for foreign policy, our good friend Molly O'Toole. Hey, Molly. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. All right. So um, you just got back from... Gitmo. Yes, I it's did. still in business. Turns out it's still there. How many uh, prisoners are still there? We have forty-one detainees left. All right. 
41 down from, there were like 400, 600 So at, one time. at its height, well, in total, there have been about 800 people, yeah, men, yeah. because there have never, never been any women, but uh, 800 men that have been kept at Guantanamo. And uh, President Bush, um, obviously President Obama's predecessor, uh, he released about 500 people. So by the time Obama got Guantanamo, inherited Guantanamo, it was around 200-something. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, he ended up transferring about 196 people during his tenure. So we have 41 yeah. who remain and were handed off to Donald Trump. Right, and of course, remember we remember that uh, President Obama had set a goal that he would close Gitmo a year after he took office. That didn't happen for uh, a lot of reasons. Right. One is that Congress passed legislation saying we will never accept any prisoners here on American soil. Right. So the prisons to open. But then at the end of the, his administration, President Obama's goal was to get it down well below 100, thinking right. that if it got down that low, then it would be just wouldn't be cost effective to keep it open. And right. even Congress would finally say, all right, we'll take the last few stragglers. This did not happen, obviously. And so with this 41 and the budget last year for Guantanamo, it's about 10 million, uh, a little over 10 million. That's the cost roughly to hold each uh, each day t- detainee that's there. It was a really fascinating. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop. Sorry. So it's about over 10 million per detainee. Yeah. Whoa. Because of the per budget, the de- budget's over 400 million for Guantanamo, for the, for the prison oh specifically, for Joint God. Task Force Guantanamo. Crap. And there's yeah. 41 men left. So. About an average they of 10 million. could save the Ritz for that. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, there's, Seriously. A, there's a lot of challenges with Guantanamo, obviously. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly isolated base, um, and it costs a lot to uh, sort of get equipment, get uh, resources there. And the sort of the massive footprint of the base is separate from the prison, but also now there's about, I think that they said there's about 1,600 military personnel that are tasked to the prison specifically. To 40 for prison. 41 men, so 1,600 personnel for 41 men. So that, figure that oh, out. How many uh, guards is that? I mean, that's so, yeah, that's, that's a, like a higher percentage than than there are for prison guards in most federal prisons. Right, but it was a really fascinating time to go there. How did you get there? Sorry. Uh, so there there are a few ways to get to Guantanamo. Uh, not very many ways. Yeah, uh, if you remember, I checked Southwest Airlines. Uh, <laughs> it turns out there weren't any it's still hard to get to Cuba in general. Uh, no, you only go straight to Guantanamo and you leave Guantanamo. It's not like you get to make a separate joy. So Joy ride to Havana. Um, so it's got to be a military plane. Right? Well, you, the media gets to go down there in two ways. So if there's a military commissions, which are, are the, the pretrial proceedings that continue to move forward for the quote-unquote worst of the worst, the alleged 9-11 hijackers, uh, alleged USS coal bombing, uh, those are the higher-level detainees, of which we think that there are 15, mm-hmm. and then the other 26 are these lower-level detainees. So the military commissions are continuing. I think KSM actually has pretrial hearings uh, should be this week uh, over the next couple months. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you go to a military commissions, then you would take a military plane, uh, and you pretty much go straight to the courtroom. You leave the courtroom. You don't do anything else. But there are actually separate uh, trips uh, for the media every so often, um, and you sort of take the—I hate to use the word tour, but you sort of tour uh, the facility. So we went inside Camp 6, uh, where the lower level, the 26 men, are being held— and and you observe them at prayer. Uh, they a lot of them live in in a they live in separate cells, but they have a communal area. So for 22 out of 24 hours a day, they sort of get to do what they want within this communal area. They cook, they watch TV, they read books, uh, play video games, go out in the yard. Um, but it is a it's a really interesting time at Guantanamo. It's always been a bizarre place, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it's always been a weird place. It's got a it's got the only McDonald's in Cuba. It's got a subway. Oh, wow. I mean, it's a massive naval station. There are five thousand. Yeah, people there and it looks like any other military town but you turn one way and you've got this beautiful caribbean beach and then across the way you have one of the most secure facilities 
in the world. So it's always been a strange place. But particularly right now, it's in this weird limbo yet again where one day it gets handed off from a president who has literally ordered it to be closed and did not succeed to a president who has said he not only wants to keep it open, but he wants to load it up with some bad dudes. But because he hasn't handed down any executive orders to that effect, they're still operating under Obama's orders. So it's a very strange position for everyone to be in. They're sort of in this holding pattern where, hey, maybe they'll maybe the Trump administration will put somebody on a plane and they'll arrive. So is the the prison uh, like a big part of the military base or just like a small little corner of the military base? I would, I would describe it more as a small corner. I mean, uh, most of the footprint so, of so that. The, the base the base in and of itself right. is big and active. Oh, and yeah. I mean, 45, of... 45 square miles of Cuba uh, is is the area that the U.S. military mm-hmm. holds. Uh, and the prison is only one part of that. And at one time, it was much larger. Um, but a lot of the facilities that they had have, have been abandoned for a decade. Camp X-Ray, for example, which is where they first brought the very first detainees were brought to Guantanamo, it, you know, associated with eight by eight sort of cement yeah, wire right. fence. I, remember uh, I mean, you remember that. Um, it has trees going through it and it's been long, oh. you know, it's been long abandoned. And yeah. Camp Iguana, where they once held uh, children, actually, 15 minors, um, that's also abandoned. So some many of these facilities are abandoned. There's only two prisons in which two camps, essentially, in which they still hold prisoners. And that's that Camp 6 for lower level detainees and Camp 7 where the high-level detainees are, they acknowledge it exists, but they won't comment on it any further. So it's sort of just in oh, there somewhere. You didn't, wow. you didn't see it. No, no one sees Camp 7. Right. Um, and <laughs> is it a one-day trip down and back? No, it's a few. So uh, we were there, I think we were there for about three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, right, you see Camp 6, and you get to interview, um, you know, we spoke with the commanders of the prison specifically and then sort of the overall commander of Joint Task Force Guantanamo uh, and we asked them a lot of questions about what they thought, you know, what they thought was coming, what they were doing to prepare. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, they're in a very strange position in which they know this so president they, has a they certain... recognize they're sort of uh, in a transition or in, in between stage. And... Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's it, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And in particular, the detainees actually it shouldn't be surprising, but it is some it was somewhat to me. The detainees follow the news extremely closely. And some of them are very involved in their own legal cases. They watch the news. 24, 22 out of 24 hours a day yeah. sometimes. Uh, so they followed the election very closely. I mean, there was reporting that when Obama was elected in 2008 that there was sort of cheering in the block because they were well aware that he had a very strong position that he wanted it close. So they watched Donald Trump get elected uh, and the, the senior medical uh, official at the, at the clinic there for detainees said that there have been some reports that the detainees have this sort of increased anxiety uh, because they know a president has been elected who wants to keep open Guantanamo when they had seen this sort of life at the light at the end of the tunnel. Not not just closing Guantanamo, but this president has said he would like to bring back waterboarding. He would like to bring back, um, you know, all these sort of interrogation techniques that have been found to be torture. So, like, I can imagine that they're not super comfortable right now. In particular, yeah. as some of these men have been subjected to torture, sure, which is one yeah. of the reasons why their their legal cases well, are so complicated. What about these twenty six low level, low priority? Why don't they just let them go? Uh, it's a, I mean, it, it, there's a full range <laughs> of uh, the full range of issues there. I mean, there have been cases in the past where the U.S. has even admitted that it was uh, mistaken identity, for example. Yeah, and right. they still didn't transfer those people for uh, additional years. There are actually five detainees in that twenty six. Uh, that are cleared for transfer, but, but the clock ran out under the Obama administration. So it's people that the U.S. government has admitted six national security agencies have said that they no longer pose a national security threat. And that's not even commenting on 
whatever initial suspicions the government may have had about them. How long have they been held there? Uh, which ones? It's a, it's, it's a range. 41, but r- roughly. For most of them, they've been there relatively early on. So, 2000, so Guantanamo starts in 2002. Uh, so I think the most recent one to arrive was actually in 2007. But most of them have been, you know, 2003, so, 2004, 2005, been held there for 10 years, never been charged. Many of them have never been charged with a crime. And right now, that's, that's among the I'm, current population, none of them were actually captured by the U.S. military. They were captured by someone else and then handed over to us. So of the remaining population... Uh, only 10 have been charged with war crimes. Most of them have never had any charges. Um, so for the 26, I mean, the U.S. government claims that there is still, obviously for five of them, that they don't no longer pose a national security risk. But for some of them, that they could still propose a national security risk. But 10 have risk. been charged with war crimes. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I'm going to back up. Yep. Uh, we're, not, we're not talking about every single one of them. But, right. but roughly, you've got 41 people mm-hmm. there who have been held in an American prison for 15 years, of whom only 10 have so far been charged with a crime. Right. Is this even close to being legal? That's an ongoing debate. And, for, the, for example, the, uh, the Trump administration right now is weighing whether or not to bring Islamic State detainees to Guantanamo. And there have been people that have suggested that that would move them into a really tricky legal territory uh, because for exa- here's a sheer logistical problem that they'd have to deal with, and that, that the guards talked about, that or the commanders so talked ISIS, about. You can't ISIS put ISIS, yeah, yeah, ISIS captives. You can't put ISIS captives with some of these guys who are alleged to be associated with Al Qaeda. It's like putting someone made this great analogy. I think it was in a Carol Rosenberg story, who who is wonderful on Guantanamo. That it's be it'd be like putting Crips with Bloods. You can't put them in the same place because they're not. <laughs> They, uh, in many ways, are, are rivals or are not associated with each other. So that just shows how the, the authorization for the use of military force, which the Obama administration and the Bush administration used as the foundation for holding what they call law of war detainees, that it's legal to, hold, to detain the men at Guantanamo because they're part of the war on terror, the war on terror is ongoing, so on. People say the AUMF may not suffice to hold an Islamic State detainee. So if an Islamic State detainee was brought in by the Trump administration... Mm-hmm. Uh, they could potentially challenge their detention, um, and that could result in the court saying, hey, this AUMF is not, this AUMF from 15 years ago uh, to deal with the al-Qaeda of then is not sufficient for an Islamic State detainee. Did you have a chance to ask any of the um, leadership there, the commanders mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, about the about the capacity of yes. prisons on American soil to hold these uh, well, what's interesting is is the the prisons there. Um, they will say when they we we toured Camp Five, which isn't in use anymore. They're actually turning it into a medical facility at the moment. Um, they said it's modeled after so and so prison in the United States. So that just sort of goes to show you that there are maximum security facilities in right. the United States. If Guantanamo's prisons are modeled off of them, I think that shows the level of security. In the U.S., so that they won't comment on what they call, you know, what they they deem as policy questions. Um, but the facilities because down there, because we do have maximum yes. security prisons so the here that no down one there, has ever escaped yeah, from. And, and the facilities down there are modeled off of those prisons in the United States. Uh, so obviously, the Obama administration was looking at Flo- uh, the supermax facility in Florence, Colorado, for example, um, and at even some some U.S. military, the Naval Brig in Charleston, for example. Uh, was mm-hmm. what the Obama administration was looking at. But so the commanders down there will tell you they have about 200 beds. If if the Trump administration were to choose, and it's hard to see where they would even get that many people um, right now, 
but they have 200 beds as their capacity at the moment. But a lot of those facilities are they've let them fall, you know, into disuse for about a decade because their orders were to shut it down. So it's a really interesting time for them to have to consider, okay, what happens if we get what happens if we get some more people? Uh, yeah, if I were a Democrat in Congress, I'd be worried. Um, <laughs> I might end up and get well. Yeah, right. <laughs> Molly O'Toole is with us from Foreign Policy. It's foreignpolicy.com. Uh, we were talking a little earlier, Molly, about um, the, by the way, uh, I, having been to Cuba twice, I, because there's some other parts of the island you should really see I sometime. I think I need to go back to Cuba <laughs> yeah, and, right, and right. not to Guantanamo. I don't think you got the full tour. No, yeah, and not to Guantanamo. The full yeah. thing. Uh, I'm glad you had that trip, but I'd suggest the next time you yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, the father of the uh, Navy SEAL killed right. in that uh, raid in Yemen. Right. Um, we remember uh, President Trump and his daughter going to Dover Air Force Base uh, to welcome the body home. It doesn't seem like uh, Donald Trump was particularly welcomed by the Navy SEALs family. Right. That was a really amazing story that was done on the part of the Miami Herald. And the father said, look, I don't speak for my family. This is my – some members of my family don't agree with this. This is my personal opinion. He wants to know. He wants to know what was behind that raid. I mean, the U.S. military admitted they said everything that could have gone wrong – went wrong. And what's interesting is there's actually a connection there to, to Guantanamo. I mean, John McCain suggested, other observers suggested that part of the motivation for that raid was capture, actually. Um, Donald Trump criticized the Obama administration, claiming that they, if you're talking about a, a kill or capture decision for a high level, uh, someone you deem to be a terrorist mm-hmm. threat or potentially plotting attacks against the West, uh, the criticism, conservative criticism often was that um, the Obama administration relied too much on kill, on drones, on extrajudicial strikes, uh, essentially to keep U.S. boots off the ground uh, in a situation like Yemen. The Obama administration had largely decided not to send boots into Yemen um, because of the risks there, and it could be an escalation of the U.S. military's involvement. So when weighing that decision about the raid, they you know they sort of handed it off to the Trump administration, but observers have suggested that part of the motivation was captured was and could potentially be politically motivated to mm-hmm. get they wanted to have a detainee to put in Guantanamo to show that they were going to capture mm-hmm. uh, terrorist suspects um, because their argument was that that was more valuable from an intelligence standpoint to keep someone alive essentially so was this raid uh, well put together had it been well thought out and uh, did it just simply go wrong or was it not quite ready and they rushed into it there's a whole lot of debate about that i mean former administ- obama administration officials said that it, you know this was debated endlessly and that was one of the criticisms and they walked away from it and they walked away from it in, in part in part they did have concerns about escalating <laughs> the us military's involvement in yemen uh, very risky to put um, U.S. military boots on the ground in Yemen. Uh, but in, I mean, part of it was also logistical, right? They needed, a, a, I think they needed a moonless night, I believe. Yeah, a yeah. moonless night. And that wasn't good. The next one wasn't going to come until oh. the Trump administration. So there are pure logistical things from a strategy standpoint. And then there are also sort of uh, larger political implications. What about the certainty that civilians would be killed in this raid? That was a consideration, too? I believe that was a consideration also. I mean, the Obama administration... Which happened. Right. I mean, we had, you, have, you can see policy guidance from the Obama administration in which they're extremely careful about minimizing uh, collateral damage, civilian casualties. The conservative argument and the, the Trump administration also has adopted is, oh, we're, we're handcuffing our members of the military and that the rules of engagement are too strict. But you have to deal with the reality of if you're going to suggest loosening the rules of engagement, that basically what you're suggesting is that you are willing to allow for more civilian casualties. 
And um, that was certainly what happened in that raid. Uh, Eight-year-old American uh, citizen um, potentially killed in that that raid. Uh, A lot of civilians killed in that raid. By all accounts, a very messy raid. Now, what the motivations were, whether it was rushed or not, um, whether they ignored some of the concerns that the Obama administration had, that those are the sorts of things that would come out uh, if we were to have say, an investigation. Those um, are the questions the that the father would like uh, answered. He uh, was quoted in the Miami Herald as telling the president, quote, don't hide behind my son's death to prevent an investigation. Right. What well, do we hear from the Trump administration? Yeah, we're going to get the that Trump administration has already signaled that they would be open to an investigation of what happened in the raid. Um, I think the Times had reported that this weekend. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's always valuable if you, to whatever extent you can, to to see how decisions uh, are made uh, that go behind the raid. So it's a very powerful argument uh, for that from the father of the the fallen seal. Is this Trump's Benghazi? <laughs> well, th- 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 I think then we'd have to agree on what Benghazi, uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what Benghazi <laughs> was. But certainly, I mean, it was his his very first uh, his very first military operation that he greenlighted. Uh, his first combat casualty. Um, I do think what happened behind this raid and how the White House may have handled it, or how unprepared they may have been to handle it, uh, is going to have implications further down the road. <laughs> The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. All right, friends and neighbors, we have a new chair of the Democratic National Committee. He is former Labor Secretary Tom Perez, of course. Uh, Now, you know, I supported Keith Ellison. I'm disappointed Keith Ellison didn't win. But total support for Tom Perez. He's a good man, good progressive, very strong progressive. Uh, for years and years and years, no doubt about it, and the best labor secretary uh, that we ever had. Uh, my problem with Tom Paris, of course, is he was a, he is a member of the Democratic establishment, Democratic Party establishment. He's not part of the new progressive force uh, led by Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren and uh, Sherrod Brown. Uh, you know, he's uh, part of the Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama team who've been in power too long, if you ask me. I mean, and look what happened uh, after all of those years in power. What did they give us? Uh, They gave us Republican control in the House, Republican control in the Senate, Republican control in the White House, and Republicans uh, picking up 1,000 state legislative seats around the country and some 31, I believe it is, governorships. So uh, they had their chance and they failed. It is time for an entirely new team. But the election has been held. DNC has made its choice. And uh, I urge everybody to uh, unite behind Tom Paris, particularly since the first action he did was to name Keith Ellison as his deputy chair. So now with Keith at his side, what Tom Perez has to do is break from the establishment and totally shake up the Democratic Party from top to bottom. Or I should say from bottom to top because we've got to start at the county level. There should be a Democratic force, Democratic establishment committee active and well-funded in every one of the 3,143 counties in the country and start the Democrats start electing uh, new Democrats, young Democratic leadership from the school board all the way up to the Senate. Yep, under the leadership of Tom Paris and Keith Ellison, time for us now to uh, go to work, organize, 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 rebuild the Democratic Party, and come back strong in 2018 
and 2020. This is the Bill Press Show.